welcome to Big Jim's Garage on the B-Pod Studios Network. I'm your host, Big Jim O'Brien. Marcus Collins is our guest. Had a conversation with him. It's a deep dive into really like, if you, if you weren't aware of this, Ford um, actually didn't use any social media advertising to launch the Bronco. Now, there was a ton of social media talk, obviously. But Marcus is a, a lecturer, U of M graduate, University of Michigan, also Temple University, where he's, I think he's working on his doctorate there now. Um, you've seen him in TED Talks, but his perspective on business, this guy actually did some marketing for Beyonce as well. And we're going to talk about Ford, whether it was a good move for the company to put the foot down regarding hate speech and the conversations on social media, and also the impact of Ford versus Jeep, what Bronco versus Jeep, what it means. Ladies and gentlemen, a conversation with the one and only Marcus Collins. Ladies and gentlemen, yeah. Marcus Collins, uh, the Ross Business School U of M, and we've seen your TED Talks and everything that you've done, Marcus. How are you, sir? I'm doing quite well. Thank you so much for having me this morning. Oh, it's an honor. So the thing I wanted to talk to you about, first and foremost, I was thinking about you because when Ford announced they were not going to use social media in the midst of the biggest launch of a brand or a product that they've done in I can't remember when. Um, were you struck by that at all, Marcus? You know, I thought you know, I, when I first heard that they were going, they were they were participating in the the, the Facebook ban boycott. You know, I uh, you know I thought it was admirable because there are other brands who, whenever, whenever a brand stands up for something that um, uh, that that has cause related, I tend to kind of perk my ears up and you know and, and admire them. But I really admired the brand because in the middle of this launch, by right to start this launch, they're not going to use a vehicle that is commonplace for marketers to get their messages and products out to the world. And to me, I think it's, it's, it is a sign, a demonstration of conviction. And when brands just like people act with convention, you know, I can only salute them. So if you're, if you're Mark Zuckerberg, how do you change Facebook then? How do you change what people are saying when you've created a platform that is allegedly open to free speech. How do you do that? So, you know, this is, this is a challenge, right? And this is, you know, I guess this is a a debate for the Supreme court justices uh, and, you know, the, the legal world, but essentially it's like, yes, there is free speech in this country, but Facebook is not the country, right? Facebook is an entity. It's an, it's a company, it's an organization. And just like you can't say anything you want in the halls of Facebook as an employee, you know, there, there is some governance to what is acceptable um, on the platform. I mean, the platform, they certainly, to say this is just free speech, but yet they take down pornography. Well, isn't that contradictory? You're right. And it's, again, I'm, I'm no scholar when it comes to this. Um, it, I look at it from a, just a decency perspective. When there are things that cause uh, community harm and in the interest of public safety, I think those things we have a responsibility to, uh, to, to mitigate. Now, when we're, in, when we're having these kind of conversations, we are essentially talking about ethics and morality. And the thing about ethics and morality is that you can't legislate that. You can legislate what is acceptable as far as like what one can do. But what you feel, what you think, and how you see the world is is dispositional, and that is, can't legislate. So essentially, what happens here is that um, the uh, it's it's up to the people who run Facebook, their own idiosyncratic 
dispositions are going to inform what is acceptable and what isn't. And I think that, you know, Dr. Berg has a decision to make. Do you stand on what you think is the way to go or do you go with the tides? Do you go with the social discourse? And more, are you think more based on that? Uh, do you think, Marcus, that more and more people are going to follow in Ford's footsteps and do what they're doing? Well, I certainly think that if Ford has uh, success, which all signs seem to signal yes, right? right? Like you know, the, the pre-sales for Bronco sold out, but it was a it was a constricted number. People still put up money to be on the, the pre-sale, right? So. One would say that the, the Bronco launch uh, so far shows positive signs. And if marketers can do that in a digital world that we live in, where social social networking platforms are a massive vehicle for marketers to get their products out in the world, if there is a case study where a marketer didn't rely on it at all, right, in fact, did quite the opposite intentionally, then it certainly gives uh, – some some sign of positivity to other marketers and say, hey, maybe there's a way we can do this without leveraging the Facebook platform. We, we've seen marketers do this without leveraging television and be successful, which certainly would certainly uh, cause some concern for, for 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 television networks. So I suppose Facebook isn't um, isn't uh, exempt from that either. Yeah, we saw just as a little side. I don't want to go down to the rabbit hole with this, but I thought it was an interesting thing that happened. Um, about the Peacock, the the network, you know, that their streaming service, they ran a 30 Rock episode that you were never going to see any more 30 Rock on trust on regular TV o- over the air. And some of the over the air stations around the country said, I'm not running this because it's just a 30 minute infomercial for something to compete against us. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, you know, that 30 Rock thing was, <laughs> it was, uh, that's a whole other conversation. But you're right. I mean, essentially, the, the, you know, just like Facebook, disrupted how we uh, think about traditional marketing communications, or at least the distribution, the media distribution outlets for messages to reach people. You know, Facebook isn't exempt from being disrupted as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Marcus Collins with us, the uh, business school, Ross Business School, U of M here, University of Michigan. Um, the other thing about the Bronco launch, and I, we were, we were having this discussion here. Um, it's Coke versus Pepsi because you're going after Jeep. And Jeep people, I've never seen... Any uh, people love Mustangs and they love their Camaros and their Firebirds and their Corvettes, but Jeep owners are loyal to a fault. They even have their own little wave when they drive by each other. Yeah. For any brand to go after, what do you have to do to to make someone change their loyalty? I'll give as an example. I've got a friend here who will not eat a Popeyes chicken sandwich because he feels like he would be cheating on Chick Fil A. <laughs> I, I mean, it's true. I mean, these, these are you know these are are cultural. These are these, these are uh, relationship-based, meaningful relationships that we have with brands and branded products. And our identity is is associated with these. Our identities are wrapped into these things. Um, so to to not do them feels like you know we are we're, we're we are we are at odds with ourselves, right? Like right. I'm an Apple guy. I used to work at Apple. I love Apple. You're never going to see me with a Samsung device in my pocket ever. <laughs> <laughs> to your point, I feel like I put, not, even, not only am I feel like I'm cheating on Apple, I feel like I'm cheating on myself, like I'm not being true to who to who I am, which means that if I am Ford, I'm not trying to convert uh, the, the Jeep fans. Like I said, that, I, w- I wouldn't even try to do that, try to unearth that. I mean, we've seen 
Samsung tried to do that with, with iPhone lovers. Like, yeah, right. Like, that's not happening. So the idea is not to try to convert the non-believers. The idea is to activate the believers so they can convert the non-believers. Right? Like, your friends are more inclined to convince you to do a thing than a brand is. Right? But if, right. You, if your friends say that this, they, they evaluate the product or the branded product or the brand itself a certain way and it becomes legitimated, like accepted within this collective, your friends, your network, these social groups that you're a part of, these institutions that you're a part of, you're more inclined to adopt the behavior to be socially normative, to be in, in step with your people, as Emil Durkheim would say, to, in an effort to promote social solidarity we would consume versus looking at the value propositions of a product or a branded product. So, Marcus, really, if I look back on the Coke Pepsi, the old Pepsi challenge, really all that did was galvanize Coke drinkers. They're like, right? I mean, it didn't it didn't make them want to change. It just like, well, you're wrong. I still love my product. I, it didn't do anything to make Pepsi people love Pepsi more. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, but you know what? To that end, I think, yes, it, it, it galvanizes, it activates the people who are like, I am not a Pepsi person, I am a, a Coke person, but it also gave identity to Pepsi drinkers, oh. which I would argue Pepsi didn't necessarily really have. Pepsi was a, a beverage that people liked, but there was no identity associated with me being a Pepsi person, right? And then Pepsi having the language, the, the choice for the new generation, right? These are all um, identity signals. Right? And, you know, we, as consumers, we, we pursue identity projects all the time, like the, the, the brands that we wear, the cars that we drive, where we eat, where we go, I mean, even the movies we watch. And we think about, like, you know, back in the day when people were watching uh, Twilight, which is crazy, that was almost 10 years ago, <laughs> that like, you were either Team Edward or Team Jacob, right? Like, we are um, – social life is very much predicated on the notion of in-group and out-group bias. Right? It's us versus them. And the us provides this notion of identity. And in that identity, in that identity subscription, we feel a sense of belonging. And cognitively, we feel safe that way. And that's a really powerful thing. And brands have the power of providing identity for us as we navigate the social world that we live in. Well, I, I work for a, a radio station here in the Motor City, WCSX. Classic Rock Station for 33 years, and, and it's a great case study right now that um, Classic Rock resonates with so many memories to people they identify with that in these, in these turbulent, uh, turbulence and under, understatement, but the times that we're in, we're seeing people gravitate to the station because the music is comfort food for them. It's comforting. They, right. they know what they're getting, and maybe that's something people are looking for these days. You know, perhaps you know, nostalgia is powerful that way. You know, what's interesting about nostalgia is that nostalgia used to be considered a uh, disease. <laughs> it, was a, it was a psychological order. Like, you know, this idea of li- reliving the past uh, was, was seen as a, a negative thing. But you're right. We find comfort, comfort in the past. And perhaps, you know, uh, bringing back the Bronco helps us look in the past uh, – with some armor for the future. You know, and I like that about the Bronco, that it's forward-looking. Right. I think that brands, and I typically, like my career as an advertiser, has been on looking at brands that were once dominant or once powerful, sort of lost their way, and trying to find new relevance for them. So I tend to have affinity to see those brands operate. And I feel like that's, that's what, what Bronco is doing for themselves, taking the equity from the past and looking at how do we operationalize that going forward. 
Do you think as a marketer that we, since we obviously don't have auto shows this year to go see the vehicles, we've done these virtual launches and everything. Are we at a point now where we don't need auto shows that the, that the, the OEMs, the manufacturers are going to go, okay, I can do this and not have to spend millions of dollars to, to ship these cars all over the world. And I can launch a car when I not want to, not when Geneva or Detroit or LA decides that that's the right time. Sure. Now, I thought you, you saw a little bit of that, uh, you know, in the few years prior that, you know, people were kind of teasing cars. I mean, Tesla basically did that, right? Like right. teasing cars outside of the normal cycle, um, which then said, well, why are we confined to these artificiated, um, these artificiated timelines? In fact, the, the auto show this year, unfortunately, it canceled, was going to happen in June. Yeah. Right? Like moving outside of the, the normal confines. I mean, I think that the advertising world, or at least the automotive world as advertisers, have lived in these artificiated confines that you have to announce a car this way, you have to communicate that way. It's talk about the JD Power, like there's, there's the only way, there's the only value proposition that you need to show that the car has to be, you know, going through the forest and zipping through turns with a, a you know, a, a Morgan Freeman like voiceover for it to be effective advertising or effective in its uh, pursuit to get people to buy. But I think that, you know, hopefully, you know, in times of uh, uncertainty or times of disruption like we're experiencing now with COVID, that it forces marketers to be uh, creative, to, to, to widen their aperture about what the tapestry is available for them as, as marketers. And I feel like, you know, perhaps this, this, this situation with, 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 with Bronco is, is at least evidence of what is possible and helping marketers kind of remove the, the, the blinders of what, has to be done and look at what can be done. So Bronco doing a wonderful job of creating followers, people who are, who are activated that, that, you know, want to share the message and they're, they're proud of the brand and they'll show people it's like, it's like their IZOD shirt. I mean, you know, Bronco nation, uh, even using that website and the imaging like that. Um, and competition is good, right? I mean, competition is still good. So, so Bronco and Jeep ha- going head to head like this and even the Jeep ad, which I thought was beautiful. The one they did about their electric one, where it showed some uh, Broncos asleep. I thought that was subtle, but really well done. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like this is. I mean, we, this is stuff we 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 love. Like we love to see two juggernauts brawl it out, right? Because we get to see sort of uh, the sport of it all. You know, no one wants to see the NBA Finals with you know one dominant team and one lesser team because it right. doesn't feel interesting at all. But seeing two you know two Titans go at it. It's, I mean, it's great. It's great fodder uh, for for uh, car lovers, and it creates great discourse for them to talk about it. You know, you know, uh, you see the same thing with like uh, Chevy and F one fifty. Like, you know, these things create conversations that allow us to a sort of put our flag in the sand on where we identify, but also it gives us reason to talk. And, and the, the discourse that happens from these conversations is what builds social ties. It's what helps fortify community um, and, you know, watching these two giants go at it, much like Coke and Pepsi is like, you know, get your popcorn. This is going to be good. And hopefully, you know, I, I, I hope for Bronco's success and I look forward to seeing Jeep success. And I love to see these two things happen because to your point, competition breeds innovation. Competition forces the person, the, the other side of the, of the, uh, of the ring to look forward, to try to outdo, and that only provides more opportunity for 
consumers, for marketers to debate and to discuss, um, but also provides opportunity for the industry as well. So, and the the one thing, Marcus, too, I, I, I was thinking about this, that we watch social media that, you know, we, we set up who we follow on Twitter and who we follow on Instagram and our Facebook feed and who we block and who we don't block and what we see. As we narrow our field of vision uh, online, um, does it become even more important for, for companies to have a broader reach for, for their product? Well, I suppose, you know, I think that what, at least when I think about marketing communication, the idea isn't just about how do I blast my messages and reach as many people as possible. We think a lot about reach as a, as a, a variable, as an indicator of success. The reach doesn't matter as much to me when it comes to media reach. I think about the network effect. That is, you know, I, I tell you, Jim, and then you tell somebody else, you tell someone, and it begins to propagate within the community. And what happens is that, you know, people trust people more than any form of marketing communication more than print, out-of-home, radio, native, branded content, banner ads. We trust people. In fact, we trust strangers more than we trust marketers, right? Like, if I'm looking to buy a product on, on Amazon, I'll trust, you know, Sexy Lover 24 in Denver, Colorado, before I trust the actual brand that I'm going to buy based on that person's reviews, right? We rely on people. So activating the network effect where people talk, this discourse is very, 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 very powerful. And the reach that comes from that discourse is far more effective than just my ad showing, reaching lots of people. It's always like, and, and, and you know, obviously doing radio and stuff as I do here in the, in Detroit, um, it goes back to Arthur Godfrey way back when, when he would talk about uh, this dry cleaner in New York City, and there was a polar bear out in front that always had a little bit of dirt on it, and he'd clean it, but he painted a picture, and he made it such a thing that people would go there to see the polar bear, and then they get the dry cleaning done while they were there. Um, right, and he, right. he, he painted a picture and you, to your point, people trusted him. If, if Arthur told you the, that he would eat peanut butter on the air, or smoke cigarettes and, and he would talk about him and it was very informal, but you, you trusted him. So when you, you have friends and followers on social media or whatever form, you're right. I look at it and go, cool. If they like it, I like it. So I'll like this. Exactly. We trust our people. Yeah. You know, we will see an ad for a movie, but that looks interesting. I'm going to wait to see what everyone else thinks. I'll watch Rotten Tomatoes first, see what the score is, right? Or before you go to a restaurant, you look at the Yelp reviews. Uh, before you go on a trip, you check out TripAdvisor, right? We're essentially getting signals from people because we trust people, right? We trust when people, there is no, there's an absence of bias when they feel like, you know, that, that someone else's experience we can learn from. That's, that's, if you look at, if you borrow from um, evolutionary anthropologists, they would argue that that's how we evolved as a species, our ability to cooperate, our ability to socialize. This idea of borrowing from each other helps provide collective intelligence. And especially the people that I trust, I'm more inclined to follow those things. So if I, maybe an ad that I saw, it was like, oh, I saw that ad, whatever. But then when you discuss on the radio and I trust you and your opinion and the opinion of the people who dial, who call in and talk about it, that discourse forms my perspective and how I see the world, the evaluation that I place on that thing. And as a result, I behave accordingly. And we make, the, we make that decision over and over and over again subconsciously. Um, so tapping into the network, getting people to talk, the discourse is more powerful than the impressions that one might get from the media running.
That's interesting. And and you going back to your iPhone, I mean, Marcus, like people identify with their phones as, as, as much as they do with their cars. Yeah, absolutely. Right. right? I'm, a, I'm an iPhone guy. I'm a Samsung guy. And you, know, you, you look on Twitter, people like, you know, Team Android. I mean, we love to associate ourselves with, uh, with brands because the brands provide a sense of identity. There's cultural capital that comes from that. It's called objectified cultural capital that comes from that. It signals who I am and where I reside in this world. My social, my social position in the social world, um, both, both horizontally, like laterally, as well as vertically, like where I stand on the social hierarchy. And what kind of, so what, what, what model iPhone do you have? Do you have a 12? Oh, actually, that is a ten. Yep. I, I, I haven't upgraded totally yet. I'm, but, but, I, I stick with it. But I'm not. I'm. I'm not jumping on every every uh, every generation these days. But you know, people who do, and like I remember, there's God. I, I'm old enough, not old enough to. I guess I am old enough to remember when we were all obsessed with Intel processors. Everybody oh, had yeah. to have the latest and greatest Pentium. It was all about Pentiums. We had a Pentium processor. Oh, yeah. I got a Pentium four. I got an AMD three fifty six. And now it's like, what version iPhone do you have? And a friend of mine's an Apple developer. And when he gets like the 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 new software version, I will go over to his house like I'm looking at a carburetor on a on a on a sixty nine GTL. Right. And he'll show. I'm right, like, oh, right. look at those tiles. That's magical. And then I've got to have it. That's right. That's right. And so uh, the in the literature, there's a gentleman by the name of Everett Rogers who talked about this idea of the diffusion of innovation. And what we saw is like the bell curve that you normally see, this normal distribution curve, is that things diffuse, products, behaviors, norms diffuse in the population in this bell curve-like fashion. And at the front of the curve, the very, the very far left end of the curve is what he refers to as the innovators, like the early innovators and early adopters. It's people who are creating new things and the people who just have to have it first, right? So like your friend is a developer creating yeah. new things. And on the right next to your friend on that curve is you. Like, I got to have it first. Because having it first says something about who you are. Not only is it cool, you just want to have it, but you want to be able to say, look what I got first. There's a lot of currency that comes from that. And that currency helps fortify our place in the social world. I talked to you for hours. Marcus Collins, um, Ross Business School, University of Michigan. There's so many interesting things going on in the world right now. And, and as we all kind of figure this out together, um, and, and the Bronco thing is just another interesting case of, of how you get the word out to people. And the other thing is how much free publicity do they get on social media just by, by not being on social media? Well, yeah, I mean, that, that, that there's a story that comes out of not being there, right? Like being absent from something. Well, why aren't they there? Well, there's a story that comes out of that. I mean, this is, I mean, this is, this is, it's great. Um, you know, it's great that they, from a conviction perspective said, Hey, we're going to do this because this is what we believe. We believe this, therefore we're going to stand by it, even if it means potentially threatening our business venture. That's just how much we believe in it, which says so much about the company uh, and their and their leadership, right? But also on the flip side, them not being there is another story because the boycott is a story in itself. So there is a just there's a duplicitous discourse that happens here that I think is just only bodes well for for the brand. And, you know, on the other hand, you see Jeep taking a different approach, which is what one would do. I mean, this is why this is such an interesting thing to watch. You know, when you see these two big brands go at it, you know, one goes left, the other goes right, the exact to the zig. And that's, that's where the interesting stuff happens. Now, I'm convinced, and Marcus, I think I, sometimes I feel like I'm the only person in the auto, auto world that says this. 
I'm convinced that over the years, it's cyclical that we don't want to drive the same kind of car as our parents. Well, all our parents are driving SUVs right now. So I think <laughs> sedans, everyone's like, sedans are gone. They're never coming back. I'm like, <laughs> I wouldn't bet on it. Um, I, 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 they, they, they may be gone for now, but we don't want to be in the same car as our parents. We always, it's always been that way. So I, I think in 10 years, you're going to see sedans again on the road. Perhaps. I mean, that's, that's sort of the idea of subculture. That subculture by its very nature is meant to be, uh, is meant to, to be deviant to like the broader culture, right? right. So, you know, what's the saying that like when your parents are on Facebook, Facebook is no longer cool. Right. When Al Roker talked about a new cultural trend, the trend has died. Right. Like when it, when it becomes massively adopted, the people who are on the early end of the diffuse curve, the subculture, find the next cool thing. And sometimes, ironically, when the when the dominant culture shifts to what was the subculture, the subculture shifts something the dominant culture used to do, which is why we see cyclical natures in fashion. They return to old things as an ironic sort of nod to like, we're not doing that thing so much. So we're doing this instead. Yeah. I was, my, my, I was, I just a mess with my son as a, as a, as a kind of a test on that. Um, he came home one day and I was listening to three, six mafia. I don't listen to three, six mafia, but I, I knew he does. And, and the look on his face, I go, man, I really like these guys. He's like, no, 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 no. And he, he turned it off. He's like, no, you cannot. No, you stick with your Led Zeppelin and Bob Seger. <laughs> he didn't like that. He didn't like when we did that, but we don't. I mean, it's, it's, I, I, yeah, again, this whole thing with the Bronco and Jeep is going to be one of the greatest case studies. And it, you're right. I, there's, there's no reason that they're not going to both coexist and be incredibly successful. And uh, it's going to be fun to see. I mean, that's the hope. I mean, that's the hope for, for the industry. You know, like the, the rivalry between Chevy, F 150s and even Rams, like that's good for the truck industry. Like that's good. Yep. That kind of competition is actually good. And there is a world where they all coexist. And the people who find themselves um, have an affinity for one over the other, typically that affinity is bolstered by their identity. And that is a powerful thing. Well, hey, look at the all black Dodge Ram. I don't think I don't think Dodge had any or Ram had the all black Ram are everywhere. And I, there's no way Ram could have anticipated that, but all of a sudden, everybody had to have an all-black Ram. That truck is yeah. everywhere in the Motor City, and it's it's a great thing, you know. And, and what it does is it makes um, F-150s and and uh, and Chevy step their game up. Yeah, it's wonderful, Marcus Collins. Thank you so much for the time. This was really fun. My absolute pleasure. Um, I'm, I appreciate you having me on, um, and thank everyone for the time. Here we go, Marcus Collins. Neat guy, huh? Thank you so much for the time, Marcus. That was fun. All right. We are done for now. Um, a couple quick notes when it comes to racing. It's interesting this year that NASCAR was the one where we thought, you know, that I honestly thought like IndyCar and Formula One, we would see the changing of the guard. We're really seeing a changing of the guard in NASCAR. Cole Custer and Austin Dillon, who's been around for a while, but you're seeing, you know, some of these young drivers... And if you're not watching the sport, it's fun because these guys have raced against them for years in other series. They're not afraid. There's always this level of intimidation, respect, whatever you want to call it. And it's fun watching NASCAR because these really young drivers do not care. They are there to win. They're not there to get a participation trophy, and it's fun to watch. Also, Lewis Hamilton, 
I don't care what kind of car he's driving. You can bitch all you want about, you know, Mercedes having the best equipment, and they do. But Lewis Hamilton puts on master classes of driving if you don't watch Formula One. Okay, got all that on my system. And Joseph Newgarden is one of those drivers who's going to just break records the way he's going. Hey, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, hit, hit me up at WCSX Gym. Uh, you can also subscribe here, B-Pod Studios, and anywhere you listen to podcasts and stuff. Um, we'll get back into racing next week and car stuff, too. Spend some more time, since we're talking about the Bronco, I'm going to get some seat time in the big truck version of the Ford Raptor, the Tremor. Have you seen this? The F-250 and F-350 Tremor. We may get it on the road, too. So we'll uh, we'll talk about that as well and get into some Lexus. You be good. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.